You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta a España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are in Guadarrama. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode and I am in Guadarrama where the winner-elect of the Vuelta a España set course, his teammate Jonas Vingegaard and his teammate Primoz Roglic have just faced a full-court press from the reporters covering this race, including yours truly, on the indoor basketball court, which was commandeered as today's media centre. We'll hear more about that press conference later in the episode, probably with a bit of amateur and amateurish body language analysis from me and my guest. But for now, suffice it to say that stage 20 of the 2023 Vuelta a España can at least be consigned to history without Roglic having got off his bike on the final descent, climbed into a team car and left Spain with the parting message. That being the Slovenian for the immortal Superman Lopez greeting, fue un placer, señores, yo me quedo por aquí, or it was a pleasure, chaps, but I'm stopping here. Thanks, by the way, to David Chermil of Slovenian National Television for the translation and the lovely bit of voiceover there. Also still in the race, or at least observing from afar, is our good friend and former master of spin. I'm going to call you master of spin today, Brian, because I think we'll probably be talking about spin in cycling. Um, it is Brian Nygaard, whose input, I sense, will be very useful tonight. Brian, you have been observing from afar, I imagine, with very keen interest, not only because your compatriot, Jonas Vingegaard, has been in the thick of the action and the drama this week. No, and anyone who said that the last week would be boring because the race from a sporting point of view was over were dead wrong, right? We've had more drama around the last week of the World than I can ever remember. Oh, there was maybe that one time when uh, Contador upset. Uh, Fuente Day, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that's, that's basically it, isn't it? Brian, I, I mentioned the the pre. This is a tradition in all Grand Tours. Uh, the sort of pre, well, eve of final stage winners press conference. I've always I've always been slightly nervous about these press conferences and just the general sort of proclamation anointing of a winner the night before a the final stage in a Grand Tour. We always talk about these processional final stages, but well, as discussed earlier in the week. The, the margin is still pretty slim between Sepkus and Jonas Vingard, but these press conferences are still conducted as though it's a done deal. You've been a part of them, haven't you, Brian? Yeah, yeah, and, and I've always, uh, even if, if I haven't, uh, I've also tried to sneak in on some of them if I was uh, able to logistically, because I always find them interesting. Uh, probably more so in the tour, because they uh, they tend to have a little bit more oomph, because uh, with the journalists at the tour, I'm not saying that there's a lot of fatigue going around in, in, with you lot in the World Tour, but the journalists at the tour are often a little bit cranky, tired, and they're sitting in, ahead of a massive deadline, and it often gives a little bit more of a raucous kind of atmosphere. I don't know how, how it was with you today. Well, they are, they're interesting occasions now because, well, back in the day when you and I started covering this sport, or working on this sport, Brian, in person, in vivo, press conferences rather than in vitro press conferences were the norm um riders routinely would come to the press room and they would do the sort of walk of i don't know kind of ring walk through the, the tired grizzled journalists take their place on the front 
sort of a table set up at the front of usually a basketball court or something like it was today and um, yeah we would see them in uh, flesh and in flesh and blood in 3d 4d um, but that is no longer the case now they're generally video press conferences and what's unusual about these ones is that we do see them they do come in and tonight's of course was going to be extra interesting because of the drama that has played out nah, this week but Brian, I will tell you a bit more about what happened in that press conference later on. But first, let's go back in time, shall we, to this morning. Um, it was going to be a big day. This was a, a stage that had been talked about for many months because there were a lot of climbs on the route. And it had the potential to really, well, turn things upside down in the Vuelta a España. We no longer really thought that was going to be the case, did we? Given the way this week has played out and this sort of pact that had been made uh, within the Jumbo Visma ranks, we were pretty sure that they were going to ride as they rode the other day and they were going to protect Sepkus. Um, but Brian, there, there were some interesting talking points this morning. Um, I'm not going to say there were, there were any great nerves in the Jumbo Visma camp. I'll tell you what did happen this morning. Primoz Roglic was awarded the Solidarity jersey. Um, Brian, have you been following this keenly, the Solidarity jersey and which riders have been winning it? You know, I only just uh, became aware of it yesterday because a, a friend of mine, who's also now a, a sports editor at one of the, the uh, Exeter, the Danish tabloid paper, she mentioned it in her first, um, uh, I would say, like rather rather uh, surprising comments on the on the situation of the world. So, and I'd, I had no idea until then there was a solidarity jersey. I like solidarity, but I'm not sure that a jersey can sort of can I fit mean, the bill. Whoever came up with this, I think it was probably a great idea. It was a very noble idea. It's, it was designed, conceived to award someone who had shown some kind of sportsmanship or comradeship or solidarity. And I, I just imagined whoever, I don't know who who's on the committee, but I just sort of imagine them sitting around a table every day and well, having started to think on maybe the second or third day that actually this was a terrible idea because the, the, I'm sure there have been days when they've been really racking their brains for someone to give it to and well today Roglic won the jersey because um, I think it was yesterday well yesterday there was a group of, of fans with learning disabilities at the start of the race or close to the Jumbo Visma team bus and um, well he was very sort of smiley um, in I don't know whether he, he gave these fans jerseys or an autograph but um, he, he, he certainly oh, so this is, was this generous is, with his time yesterday morning right, right. at but the Vuelta organization did specify that this was despite literally despite days of tension in the competition and challenging dynamics within his own team um so uh, Primoz Roglic rode off the stage this morning having gone to sign on with the rest of his teammates with this jersey sort of over his shoulders flapping around he looked like sort of Freddie Mercury at Wembley Stadium in I don't know circa 1985 um in sort of kind of typical cavalier irreverent Roglic fashion of course this jersey was not well, to be he has worn. sported a moustache too hasn't he he's what Brian he, he has sported a moustache too hasn't he he on has occasions? he has he has and um, Brian earlier in the world we promised to do some kind of feature or we have have a discussion about the very unusual jerseys that have previously been awarded in the Vuelta Espana. We've not got round to that. Um, just a couple that I, I did want to recall, um, remind people of. The the Tiger Print jersey for the best Neopro, that was awarded in, just for a couple of years I think at the beginning of the 70s, um, Jose Manuel Fuente, El Tarangu, famous climber, he wore that. There was also a famous 
um, was a fetching sky blue jersey for Neo Pros in the early 90s. Um, in ni- between 1993 and 1998, there were two pretty much identical red jerseys. One for the Metas uh, Volantes, the intermediate sprints, and the other one for sort of consistency, regularity. Black King of the Mountains jersey in 1981... Um, and in 1988 and 1989, the King of the Mountains jersey was white and speckled with sort of brown coffee beans because Cafe de, de Colombia were a sponsor. Are we not forgetting the golden jersey, the golden leader's jersey? Well, the golden, yeah, I was a big fan of that. Uh, yeah. Although I'm also a big fan of the red, the way the Vuelta has sort of reconfigured all, all its branding, redesigned all of its branding, and it's Can got I a just, really strong uh, identity now short anecdote about that because when I was at the board of AIGCP which is the organization that protects all the team's interests or at least try to uh, to gain common ground and when that was introduced there was a, an outcry from Movistar because the red color symbolized uh, Vodafone they said their biggest competitor oh, really? on the Spanish market so they're dead against it we're not going to write any Vodafone uh, colors and then I, I'm not going to tell you who and someone said like when are you going to win the world? <laughs> Someone said at that meeting, and the, yeah, yeah, there was there was intense. Yeah. Surely, yeah, our good friend Eusebio Unthwe would not have been so churlish. Um, Brian, I said that there were no, there wasn't any great palpable sense of nerves this morning around Jumbo Visma and around their bus. Um, nonetheless, the question was asked. The question was put to Sepp Kuss. Was he feeling nervous before this? Nonetheless, very important day in his career. Here's what he said this morning. No, not not as nervous as I would would imagine. Um, yeah, at least by now I've had enough days in the jersey. I'm used to the the, the process and everything, and and uh, handling the the pressure, if if you would call it that. And um, no, I, I feel really good, and, and we have a good team. And uh, yeah, I'm just looking forward to, to today and, and giving it my best. Yeah, challenging, but uh, no, I've been happy with the way I've I've uh, handled it or or embraced it in a way. Um, so that's that's been really interesting. And uh, yeah, I mean, with this experience, I, I still have a lot of respect for for the guys that are fighting for the GC in in every race. It it really takes a lot, and uh, that that can't be discounted. Yeah, my my mom just arrived. Um, my my dad is at home. I mean, he's uh, 93 years old, so <laughs> still in good shape, really good shape. But the the flight uh, just to come over for a big celebration is is a lot for him. Um, but yeah, I've I've been thinking about him and, and know that he's watching every single kilometer of every single stage. Um, but yeah, my my wife and her family, and and yeah, that's that's my biggest support base, and and uh, they they really give me so much. So, Brian, Sepp Kuss there saying that, well, surprisingly, he wasn't particularly nervous or didn't sound as though he was any more nervous than he has been on important days in Grand Tours in the past. Talked as well about his, well, his mother being here. There's a lot of, um, lot of curiosity about Sepp Kuss's dad and his very interesting life that he seems to be or seems to have had. He's back in the United States. You heard Sepp Kuss there say that he's 93. Um, Brian, let's find out, shall we, what happened on the stage and whether Sepp Kuss did indeed hold on to that red jersey and whether he will probably in all likelihood become the first American Grand Tour winner for 10 years tomorrow in Madrid it's time for the tale of the etapa El resumen de la etapa the tale of the etapa
Thank you, Daniel. So, stage 20, the second last of the 2023 Vuelta from Manzanares, El Real to Guadarrama, the longest stage of this year's Vuelta, 207.8 kilometers. As expected, uh, a lot of attacks from the start. It eventuated a massive group of 31 riders who went away, featuring some major hitters with current hitter royale, at least when it comes to trying to catch stages. Remco Evenepoel, who was, uh, yeah, I would say aided was probably the right uh, word here by three. Um, three teammates a lot of winners a lot of very strong riders in that group uh, there was some early attacking but eventually quick step took control of the breakaway and started to majorly up the tempo towards the final shaking off a lot of riders in the process and i think everyone was sort of waiting for remco evenpool to pull the trigger uh, so because of that a couple of riders actually anticipated and went on the attack first uh, rider to move was uh, about poles and he was uh, followed immediately by Leonard van Edebelt of Lotto Destiny. They were joined by, I think, one of the nicest surprises also today, uh, who's also had a, a very good year in general, Plaio uh, Sanchez from Burgo Biace. And then eventually, Remco Evenpool did put the hammer down and he caught that group and they went, the four of them together towards the finish, um, which had a slightly uphill drag. Vought Pools opened a rather long sprint towards the line and just managed to keep... Remco Evenepoel behind him and today's uh, small and relatively young sensation, uh, Pedro Sanchez finished third. In the main bunch, no one was able to pull, put in any serious attacks and the three Yombo riders who will take, we believe, the podium tomorrow in Madrid rode across uh, the finish line together, symbolizing the, I don't know, long lost, but now definitely refound unity and uh, celebrated um, their fantastic performance and with three guys finishing on the podium there you are Daniel excellent stuff Brian and well in the hotly anticipated battle for fourth place in this Vuelta a España nothing happened either did it we talked about this Spanish civil war and rather facetiously referred to it as a Spanish civil war um, apt pretty apt because in Guadarrama is an interesting well, a very important location as far as the Spanish Civil War the real Spanish Civil War is concerned um, I mentioned earlier in the Vuelta España an excellent book I was reading by Sid Lowe it's called Fear and Loathing in La Liga and it's about the origins of the Barcelona-Real Madrid rivalry and there's a really fascinating chapter in there about the former president of um, Barcelona Josep Suñol he was the president at the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War and he was killed basically when he sort of misjudged where the front line in the Spanish Civil War was and he was taken seized by um, nationalists Francoists um, again in the in the early weeks and months of the Spanish Civil War and he was shot dead and um, well he's since become a sort of emblematic figure in the history of Barcelona a bit of a talisman the chapter itself is uh, I think it's entitled the Martyr President but he was he was killed in Guadarrama and there's a just a tiny little stone uh, tombstone here although I, I don't believe his body was ever found but it sort of marks the spot or close to the spot um, just pretty close to where i'm standing now but i would recommend that heartily that book if you're interested in spanish civil war but brian there was no movement between ayuso landa and mass maybe if we have time we'll come on later to discuss whether any of those riders sort of come out of this vuelta with their well with their reputation enhanced or diminished but uh, as far as the stage was concerned, Wout a, a pretty surprising winner, I think, when we saw that Rem- Remco Evenepoel was in the break. 
most of us assumed that it was more or less a foregone conclusion. We still probably assumed it was a foregone conclusion, despite the fact he seemed to be struggling a little bit towards the end of the stage, but got back on, and we know about his newfound abilities in small bunch sprints. Nonetheless, he was pipped by Wout Pauls, who's now, Brian, um, well, he's beaten Wout Van Aert in a Tour de France stage, and Remco Avenepoel in a Vuelta España stage in the last couple of months, so probably not a very popular man in Belgium. Brian, we're not going to hear from the stage winner, Wout Pauls, um, just yet, or just now, we're going to hear from the winner-elect, the champion-elect of the Vuelta a España, Sepp Kuss, who, as you said, came over the line, flanked by his teammates, arm in arm. And then we're going to hear from a rider, one of the vanquished riders in today's very large and pretty starry breakaway. There are a lot of good names in there, but he's had a rough Vuelta a España, as we've heard over the last few days on the cycling podcast. We're going to hear from Geraint Thomas. So Sepp Kuss first, then Geraint Thomas. Yeah, it's a crazy feeling. <laughs> still, It's still going to take a while to sink in and uh yeah just um you know i i knew it was it was possible but still have to get through each day and uh and and uh survive and 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 suffer so uh yeah just just uh relieved and and really happy when i first had the jersey it was uh of course a totally new new situation and I, i wasn't sure whether i would enjoy it or not and um yeah, as as the days went on, I I felt better and better and and had more confidence. So it became not a not a burden at all. It, it just gave me more more power, um, more more confidence in myself. And um, yeah, I think with with that you can put put everything else to the to the side. Well, Garrett, a reaction on the whistle. Um, how do you feel uh, about how the day went? Happy, the race is more or less done. But. No, we, we had to get a guy in the move and I saw it going and I saw a few of the guys in front of me rocking and rolling so I was kind of like, oh geez, I gotta just commit here, go full and managed to get into the break and then was thinking, how the hell am I gonna get a result in this? Um, I was feeling okay, but you know, yeah, that I knew that climb had a real steep section and uh, I went a bit too deep up there to be honest so I thought it levelled out after that but then it just kind of kept going and just didn't have the legs basically at the end but happy to be there in the race um, yeah hurting now everything's aching but um, yeah happy that we committed we did all we could still one more day to go tomorrow but um, yeah his way is you didn't have any teammates in there, but in the end, it wasn't maybe as tactical as we thought it might be. Um, they, they made it quite sort of straightforward, and it was a test of, of legs, really. Yeah, I thought um, at first I was like, "Oh, I got to watch all the quick step," and I was like, "Actually, no, I can't watch four guys." So I was like, oh, "I'll follow uh, or try to follow uh, uh, Catania and, uh, and Remco." But then the attacks only lasted maybe 10k or so, and then they started riding. And I did have a word with Noxy. Um, before they all kicked off to see if he wanted to come with me um, no offence to him but I thought he was probably my best chance of winning if I went with him um, but yeah he said he didn't have the legs but then the way he rode on the front he definitely did so I think he was just bluffing with me but um, yeah it was nice to be in the mix but like I say just didn't just didn't have it when it mattered really and Garen, the second stage win in a Grand Tour this year from your old teammate, Wout Pauls. Um, we didn't expect him to re- 
beat Remco in the sprint. Um, just a, a word on that achievement and well, whether you saw that coming from him. I expected him to be strong today because obviously he's been riding really well this last week and um, and he is fast. Like when he, we were training, he'd always well, most people can kick my ass in a sprint, but he was fast and um, so yeah, I, I knew he'd have a chance. And Remco, I don't know if he was bluffing, but I was having a little word with him throughout the stage and he was kind of pulling a bit of a face not really talking much normally you know he has a bit of banter and whatever so but I thought nah he's bluffing but yeah looks like he was suffering a bit and yeah fair play to Wow great to see him uh, take the win Chute Chute à l'arrière du peloton Cycling Podcast Team Car the back of the pack please that's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode of our Vuelta coverage is sponsored by Incogni from NordVPN as regular listeners will know, NordVPN keeps your data safe and secure when you're browsing online. But did you know that Incogni has a really key role to play in keeping your data safe and secure as well? Because people's search sites can hold and share your personal information. And this can include your full name, phone number, email address, date of birth, plus any household and employment information that you may have given across to companies quite legitimately, but that has been shared and sold on. All of this stuff is data that you want to keep private or at least not have floating around the internet. And Incogni can work on your behalf to ask data brokers to delete the information they hold about you in accordance with data protection laws. Now, you could do this all yourself, but doing it manually would take ages and you'd have to keep making the requests because data brokers continue collecting data and creating new records all of the time. So with a yearly subscription from Incogni, you can ensure that your data is kept private for as long as you use the service. Incogni offers the same reassurance as NordVPN by keeping your vital information off the internet where it could be accessed by all and sundry. If you use the discount code The Cycling Podcast, you can get an exclusive 60% off an annual Incogni plan. You need to go to incogni.com slash the cycling podcast. That's I-N-C-O-G-N-I dot com slash the cycling podcast. Well, Brian, that was Sepp Kuss, as we keep saying, the man who will probably, almost certainly, win the Vuelta España tomorrow. And then thereafter, Geraint Thomas, who I think on his own podcast a couple of days ago said something to the effect of Spain not being for bike races and only for holidays. He's had a rough, he's had a rough old time and, well, as you heard him say there, wasn't really in contention was never really in contention once pseudo quickstep decided that they were going to make it an attritional race and well they certainly weren't going to try sort of um, alternating attacks between the various guys they had in the break it was very clear that they're working for Remco Avenable and they they sort of rode it like a, a conventional mountain stage when you know you've got the strongest rider in the bunch or in the group it didn't work did it Brian no no I mean I was quite surprised that he didn't usually when when Remco wins bike races uh, Evenepoel wins bike races he attacks early he attacks as the first guy and and then if mm. he needs to attacks twice and then gets rid of whomever he needs to get rid of but the fact that he wasn't the first to open the final and 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 other than being a, a very experienced rider uh Pauls is, is quite a smart rider as well and he he knew that he had to anticipate that and seeing that he he won with such a small margin everything he did uh, not just because he opened the sprint but everything he did on beforehand i think that somehow took away a little bit of the 
that explosive part of of Evenepoel, and he, I think it'd also be safe to say that, as superhuman as he is, when you look at the, the what he's done in this last week in general and how hard he's been riding Evenepoel, he's, he's basically not been asking anyone to do any turns uh, when he's been away uh, in in much smaller groups than today. I mean, it, as just even if you're potentially the strongest rider in the world, you, you it will have an effect. You know, and, you, and that just means that you you can't do exactly as you please uh, on a day like today, and it, you know, it's just long stage as well. So, yeah, it, it would have been sensational if you want, but I think it's already quite impressive what he's been able to establish for himself in in, in the last part of the race. Quite impressive, Brian. But I, you mentioned in the first part that we might get on later to discussing, well, particularly Juan Ayuso is probably the most interesting one of the three Spaniards, uh, Mass and Landa, whether. Ayuso comes out of this Vuelta Espana with his reputation enhanced, his standing, his status enhanced. Um, a few days ago, I can't remember whether it was you who was on the podcast, I made the comparison between the Vuelta that Remco might go on to have and Richard Carapaz last year. And I said we'd had this conversation last year about Carapaz, despite the fact that he'd won stages, um, he was emerging, he was exiting the Vuelta diminished as a Grand Tour contender. Same question now, Brian, about Remco Evenepoel. The, the, the sort of balance sheet of Remco Evenepoel, draw it up for us, please, from your point of view. I, I didn't really understand the, the critics who said, well, now, now he's shown that, that he can't be a real threat in a Grand Tour and neither Vingegaard nor Pogaccio have anything to worry about. I, I, I think that's very premature to say. Uh, I also do believe, like the day when he lost 27 minutes, he, he might only have just have had he not basically set up, lost 12, 15 minutes, and then, you know, they w- obviously wouldn't let him right away in in the way they they did. I think he's still very much in contention, and I think every, being still relatively young for every Grand Tour he he rides, the, the more he will know about himself, and and I think he's still we're still to see his his limits being 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 pushed, and it'll it'll take at least one if not two of a whole team of riders to try and 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 put him in in danger in in, in the harder stages i think a lot will be down to how like the pack when we still we still to see the parkour of the tour de france next year you know will there be a team time trial how much tt will there be in general i definitely think he's 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 a potential tour de france winner and he we just keep seeing more sides to him and i think it, it takes he's shown he's proved to be so strong on occasions that I think outweigh that he had that one b- bad day in in the World Cup this year. I, I kind of think for Remco watchers, though, it's been a bit of a frustrating Vuelta because we haven't learned that much about his Grand Tour potential. And the, this, the great measuring stick was going to be Vingegaard, well, and maybe to a lesser extent Roglic, because that is the standard that he has to reach in order to contend for the Tour de France. And there wasn't much in the way of direct confrontation. The, the direct confrontation that there was occurred on shortish climbs okay they were explosive climbs they were difficult climbs but they were relatively short climbs and then as soon as we got to the sort of climbs that we associate with the Tour de France and associate with winning the Tour de France then well we know what happened on the Tourmalet he fell out of contention completely spectacularly there was certainly an element that day of realizing once he was two minutes three minutes four minutes down um, that it was it was pointless digging in 
digging his heels in and he did sort of sit up but that was that was the end of as i say that that head-to-head confrontation with Vingegaard and Roglic and even Sepp Kuss so in the last 10 days we have been really none the wiser about where he sits in that hierarchy that you know he's been asked about as well I remember in the Lantern Rouge interview they did with him um, before the Vuelta Espana they asked him where are you in relation to Roglic or Vingegaard and what do you think and um, I think it's still a bit it's still a bit nebulous would you not say Brian yeah yeah, I, I think so, but I, I still believe that it's not, you know, I, I know that Tourmalet is such a significant climb and it's it's one of, if not the most iconic climb in in the Tour de France context, but I, I still think that it's not it's not enough to really prove anyone with hopes on his behalf for the Tour to prove them wrong. As crazy as it sounds, he, he, can, he can potentially still develop, right? And he's... It's as if the other qualities that he's added on have maybe, and, and I'm saying that even if he just became world champion, that has taken maybe a little bit of an edge off his, his TT abilities. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. But I, I will, and I'm, I'll bet you any kind of money that the other uh, teams, Jombo Visma and UAE, they will definitely consider him a contender. And that in itself is a measuring stick because, I mean, even in his absence... And, and we'll talk about that later, I, I believe. Even in his absence, he actually had a massive influence. His, his, perform, his performance absence. Mm. He had a massive influence on how things played out for, for Jumbo Visma. Because if he had still been in contention, they wouldn't have had this week they've had. And they wouldn't have had a discussion about who was going to win. They, they would have to try and beat Evenepoel first, I think. Uh, so, yeah. And he's still, you know, he's, I mean, he started very early to pick up big wins. But I, I still think that there's... There's more for him to learn. There's more to add on, on his astonishing physique for him to be a tour contender. I, I, it would be crazy to rule him out at this point, I think. Brian, there was a lot of talk before the Vuelta a España about his team, the relative weakness of his team compared to Jumbo Visma. Um, we've had James Knox, pseudo quick steps, James Knox on audio diary duty during this Vuelta a España. And we haven't heard from James for a few days, long transfers on this Vuelta a España, late nights. Um, not always easy for James to record uh, diary entries. However, Brian, I did catch up with him this morning. Um, the morning before, well, he got into that break, as we heard Garant Thomas mention earlier, and was a very useful ally, very useful teammate for Remco Avenepoel today. But as I say, this morning I caught up with James and it was a good opportunity for him to sort of summarise his Vuelta a España before we get to Madrid tomorrow. So here's James Knox speaking this morning before his big day out on uh, in the Sierra de Guadarrama. Well, James, tell us a bit about the last three or four days. Um, obviously, Remco got another stage win. All eyes on him again today. How have you been doing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've been good, I guess, since uh, it all went wrong. Five, six days ago, it's been the sort of fall and then rise again of Remco, hasn't it? He's had two stage wins and the comeback since falling out of the, the GC. He's pretty much tied up the, the king of the mountains as well, and that's basically been the focus of the team. You know, we've just been make, trying to make sure he's in the break on these days. And again, today... Um, We've got a big job cut out to make sure that... I mean, I think today's a little bit different from my point of view. Anyway, we have some stress to be in the break, but the last day we can sort of... If you have to take control and, and ride down, then there's also no... From my point of view, it doesn't change much anyway if we have to take control of the race, if there's a break that he's not in. Um, but yeah, I've been okay. I had a couple of days where I was just uh, feeling pretty empty. Which, um, which day did I feel? The day that Remco won, that Cruz Linares day, I was there, I was just like, well, get me to... 
get me to Madrid. Um, but for the rest, it's been all good. Spirits are high, obviously, uh, with the success, and we've been just sort of watching on with the Yumbo drama. So let's watch that unfold. And you obviously, well, you had that illness at the start of the race, James. We spoke at the start of the race about it was the last year's Giro, wasn't it? The last Grand Tour you did. Yeah. Um, have there been any sort of well surprises or things that you'd maybe forgotten about doing Grand Tours that you've been sort of reminded of in in a, in a positive or negative sense over the last couple of weeks? Um, no. I mean, I was surprised. I mean, one thing I did notice in that um, like five days following the 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 tummy bug I had. I was like, one day good, one day bad, one day good, one day bad. And it was sort of like, I think it was just a bit of a case of what had taken out of me. I wasn't able to keep consistent with that. Um, but that's that was just something new for me because I've never actually been ill in a Grand Tour before. I've always sort of sailed through. Of course, I've had some crashes and stuff, but I've never had a sickness like that. Uh, so that was just personally something new. But to be honest, it's just a, I think it's just a mindset thing in the Grand Tours. I, well, I think someone told me, I can't remember who told me, but before my first one, just don't count up and then just start counting down. So just try and not think about it for the first 10 days. If you can get through the first 10 days without um, having given too much mentally or like feeling too, uh, yeah, what's the right word? It's a bit daunting at the start, obviously. So then, yeah, when you get past halfway and then you get through the second rest day, things like that, mentally everything becomes okay, okay. And obviously for me, you know, I'm a climber. So these days where guys are battling for the time cut and got really big days, I always know that... I should be okay. So, not. Ever fancy doing all three in a year? Um, I've done two in a year. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite an achievement, isn't it, actually, when you think about it? Yeah, if you could do three Grand Tours in a year, it doesn't sound fun, but uh, as, a, as an accomplishment, yeah. If you do nothing else, in, almost nothing else in between except, well, obviously training, but if you go home, you're not doing altitude camps, not doing other races. Yeah, but then your time at home is also just like, you're tired at home. You're tired at home having to think about the next Grand Tour in three, four weeks as well. So that's, yeah, it's, all, it's special, isn't it? It's very special. We are very proud to be partners with MAP, the Melbourne-based clothing company and creators of the cycling podcast jersey last year. Go to map.cc to see the whole range. They've got clothing for on and off the bike, for all weathers. And, well, in my experience, the MAP clothing fits brilliantly and wears very well and looks fantastic. Now, we're going to hear from Hamish Lowe, the product manager at MAP, about why sustainability is important to MAP, the company, and the people working for the company. So my name's Hamish, and I'm the product manager here at MAP at our HQ in Melbourne. My role is responsible for building MAP's product roadmap and guiding the process to bringing those products to life through the development journey and handing them over to the marketing and creative team. So sustainability is extremely important to me and it's an area that I'm very passionate about. It matters because we recognize that the majority of, of environmental impacts occur in the supply chain. So in particular from raw materials and the potential byproduct or waste that comes from that. So as the product manager, I have a responsibility to action elements at the front end of the development process to ensure that we're thinking about what's the most suitable material for those products whilst managing our expectation of delivering performance at the end. So again, coming back to striking that balance is super important because it's not necessarily always just just choosing the recycled material over the virgin material. We need to ensure that we're balancing everything in terms of hitting our durability requirements and ultimately getting the best riding experience as part of that. 
just to add as well, you know, the way that we try to achieve this element of sustainability from a material standpoint is really focusing on validating and qualifying fabrics at the front end of the development process. And that really comes back to wear testing and especially getting those materials into products, into prototypes and getting them on the saddle and on the bike and really getting an, a sense of elevated confidence in knowing that that's the right material for the right product. Brian, I think it's time we've discussed the stage. I think it's time for a bit of this. It's that time of day, Brian. It's that time in the podcast where thoughts turn to Jumbo Visma. The, well, the, 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 the we're not going to call it an internal battle or squabble or power struggle. Um, I think we're beyond that now. There was a bit of a power struggle, certainly earlier in the week. But it seems to have been resolved, certainly. It's been resolved in the way that we've already talked about in this podcast with Sepp Kuss. Probably going to win the Vuelta a España um, tomorrow. Brian, you're not a watcher of Succession, are no. you? Um, you haven't seen it yet. Um, Richard Richard Plugger, the team manager, found himself in the press room this afternoon. I think he had an appointment with someone, maybe a journalist. And I found myself looking at Richard Plugger, who's going to celebrate this fantastic achievement tomorrow. Um, clean sweep of the podium. All three Grand Tours. And I did think of a line from Succession... Um, pronounced by the character called Stewie who's sort of this hawkish venture capitalist who flits in and out and I thought I imagined um, Richard Plugger saying something that Stewie said in succession I assure you I'm spiritually and emotionally and ethically and morally in favour of whoever wins Um, that's probably how he felt at at, at some point in this Vuelta España Brian um, I talked about the press conference the three amigos sort of amigos did this evening. It was interesting. It was interesting. There was no uh, nothing I think that will fan any flames um, as regards conflict within the team. Primoz Roglic was pressed a little bit on his seeming discontent that he expressed earlier in the week. And um, well, the message that that, he, that sort of came through in, in typical Roglic fashion, but also more clearly from Jonas Vingegaard was that the conversations that were had on the evening of the Anglero, the meeting that was had, it was going to remain private. And we, we're not going to be fed, at least not imminently, any more information about why Roglic objected. Um, if, if we can put it in um, such stark terms. Brian, we haven't spoken to you since then. What have you made of the last two or three days and the way it's played out and the way it's been stage managed as well as a former uh, comms officer, spin doctor, press guru? Uh, I think there's been a dichotomy between how uh, it's been a work in progress internally with them because it certainly has and they, and they've admit, well, admitted they've, it's been pretty obvious. But there's been a dichotomy with how they've handled it externally. You know, they've shrugged off any talk about uh, awkward conversations or disagreements, etc. And, and they, they've written in a different way that they've talked about how they would ride. Yeah, I think that's a given. On numerous occasions, I've heard Vingegaard say something and then he hasn't really backed it up on the bike. And it was almost like there was a, a very... You could probably could have heard it throughout Spain, a turn of the page when once they finally aligned how it was supposed to be. 
And I, there's a couple of things that I thought of when I, especially with the interview that you did with Roglic, uh, which I believe was was quite was quite telling, and 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 he he kind of let his guard down a little bit and 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 said something you know along the lines of him not that he had his own opinion basically about it and, and indirectly saying that he didn't agree. Uh, first of all, Roglic is a, is probably probably never going to win the Tour de France. Now that Vingegaard has won two consecutive tours, and once Vingegaard came into the scene winning his first one, it probably meant that Roglic had to sort of find other races to focus on in Grand Tour context. And he's completely fulfilled those goals in the sense that he was he won his Giro, he's won basically all the races so far that he's participated in. And then their program changed so that they, for some that for some reason they decided to bring a nuclear weapon to a, a knife fight. Right? They brought uh, Vingegaard in, and they brought Kusin, who was apparently, and obviously in, in 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 fantastic shape. So that I think that must have also confused Roglic a little bit in the sense that well, that's great. I'll have the best help in the world. You know, if, if Vingegaard is even eighty percent of what he was at the tour, I'm not mm-hmm. going to have any problems. I'm, I don't know why they did it. If they were worried about M- uh, Evnepol, or if they really wanted to show Roglic that. You're still, and he is, and you know everything about that because his role on the team has been instrumental in their development and in everything they've done. Mm. So I think that if anyone has actually should be uh, upset about how things have gone about, it would be Roglic. He, he's the only one of those three riders who's trained specifically for the Welsh, who's had a very specific goal and has, has had a build-up that, that was made it obvious that he was in contention, you know, how he was riding in Burgos, etc. And he's... Uh, so, so I think he's uh, he's he's allowed to to be upset, and then what I think the the one sort of piece in the puzzle that people also forget a little bit is that once uh, Evnepol was out of GC contention after the stage to Tourmalet, they they didn't have any real competition with with three riders being so uh, close. And 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 being obviously from the same team, I don't think they had any, anything to worry about, and that somehow created a, a, a situation where Brocklish probably had, had said at some point, "Well, I, I, I'm I can and I will win this welter." But then having had Kuss up in that breakaway, and they they rode really hard that day. You know, we I think there's been a lot of riders talking about that day and potentially mm. being in one of the hardest days of the race. And he came out on top and he defended that lead in the time trial. Seb Kuss did. So they probably they probably underestimated how good Roglic and Vingegaard will potentially be in the latter part of the race, and then he had a, a few days of of maybe substandard if you want to win a Grand Tour. I'm talking about Kuss now, and then they, they got the messaging all wrong, right? And then you know you you referred to that quote uh, with with Pluger. He he's I would have liked a little bit more Richard unplugged because he's just been. He's been a bit. Has he's been a bit. He's been a bit cagey and said, "Ah, oh, you know, we have our philosophy, and you know, we do things, and we're winning together." But they haven't applied it very well. They've talked about it in the same way. Brian, is is there any capital to be gained from being a little bit more transparent? For example, about this meeting that took place uh, three or four days ago, um, and and telling us a bit more about how it went down. Um, why, for example. I mean, obviously, there are, there are private matters here that, that could be delicate, uh, could be very sensitive. It was interesting in the press conference, Jonas Vingar was asked directly about money and he was asked about bonuses and whether that was a consideration. And he, he did say, well, I don't think you should be motivated by money or that it's not the most important thing. Um, however, he didn't really want to elaborate. So, you know, there, there are limits to what Richard Plugger 
can say, but could there have been more transparency? And what is spell out for us what is to be gained from that transparency? Well, I think transparency is is not a, a black and white thing. You can you can scale transparency, and you can leave things out that one rider or another rider thinks is is quite private, being their salary or or, or other agreements they've had across the year and from when they did their first schedule for who was supposed to raise what. But for instance, the, the, the element with Rockledge having been, you know, appointed leader, trained specifically, had fulfilled every goal in his preparation to be as ready as he needed to be, uh, you could put that into context and say, well, it's understandable because that someone says, well, I was supposed to be the leader here and I was supposed to win it. And then you bring in these two wildcards who then all of a sudden, if not overperform, but then, you know, standing in the way of me having a clear run at trying to win it. And then it just all became quite confusing for them when Remco wasn't, you know, who was potentially the only real threat to their, to them. Not, I'm not talking about the clean sweep of the podium, but winning. So they, they could have just started a narrative or they could have been way more transparent about that earlier because it was almost as if they're explicit talking about how they work together and how much they liked each other and how much they support each other. And then not doing it on the road. With the, You could even say the Vingegaard, the circumstances of, the, of Vingegaard winning the stage, the gap he got there was not necessarily as big as it should be because he, he rode uh, a way easier than I think a lot of people were expecting him to and then gaining that minute. But the Angliru stage was, was such a mess... Uh, from a from a team coherence perspective, and you talked a lot about that being a very important thing coming out of this world, so because you can you can actually have three guys on the podium as they will, mm. and still have things to repair internally. So I just think there's been a, there's mm. been a mismatch between what they've talked about internally, what they've agreed on, and then how the race has progressed, and and it's been derailed at certain stages of the race, and it's been very visible. And then I don't think they've had very good advice for what they're supposed to say to journalists because it hasn't been I don't it's not been particularly coherent and they've sort of like if you ask a second question they seem to somehow not really be able to able to say anything other than quite sort of abstract things about winning together or whatever it is that Pluger prefers to however he prefers to say it because where we are in the situation now that I mean I think they've they've come out especially you know yesterday and today and they, and they certainly look happy and they will look I'm, I'm sure they look happy and and to some degree also be quite happy about the result but how just just imagine doing something like they did at this world and then actually still having to have issues management from a pr perspective you know you you have a luxury problem that then turns into a, a not a minor but a, a real media crisis with people starting to doubt if it's a likable team or not you know so I mean that you, you you there's no way around it that that that's been a pretty disastrous week for them. I'm sure I'm sure it'll be forgotten, but they'll mm. it'll it'll be it'll be not entirely forgotten. It'll be something that people will speculate about every time they race a Grand Tour with more than one obvious sort of winner apart from the Tour de France, I would say. Yeah, Brian. I mean, yesterday Lionel and I had the conversation, and I sort of put it to to line up that I'd been almost I suppose I'd been talked around a little bit by one of the direct sportives Addy Engels and I sort of came to the conclusion that it had looked messy but then aren't all difficult decision making processes messy and some of this had to be exposed to the light some of it was some of these decisions were almost literally being made on the road and they were 
you know they were they were difficult decisions um just on the amateur amateurish body language analysis um so primoz roglic sat in the press conference with a broad sort of irreverent grin um it looked as though he should have had a cigar in his mouth um jonas vingegaard much more earnest as you would expect um roglic was asked a couple of other interesting questions one more than one actually i think about his future next year and the line that stood out to me was he said i have everything i need in this team to to succeed that was when he was asked about his future and whether he might look elsewhere of course he has a a long-term contract with the team but yeah bridges to be rebuilt and that's an interesting question i i guess we'll find out more about it things will leak out over the next few weeks and certainly months we'll probably find out soon enough just how happy Primoz Roglic has been and maybe as I said earlier not from the horse's mouth but we we might find out exactly the nature of his grievances but I think you're probably right Brian Um, you know I think he probably felt ambushed I also think that Primoz Roglic has executed probably the best grand tour of his career over the last three months and that might be another source of grievance for him because I think that there was a a bit of a wobble. There were a couple of days where he didn't look as strong as maybe Jonas Vingegaard. But I think in the last two or three days, he's looked really, really strong. I'm not saying he would have beaten Jonas Vingegaard. I still think Vingegaard may well have been the strongest rider in the race, pound for pound. But, but after um, the time trial, Daniel, because of on, how good uh, Roglic's time trial was, you, you definitely got the idea that his trajectory at that point was better than Vingegaard's because Vingegaard's time trial was, was nowhere near what you would expect yeah. of him. With all the caveats, you know, with him having ridden the tour, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. because one thing that also has come to light this week is it, we've had almost like the most fundamental philosophical discussions about what cycling is about, right? Is it a team sport? Uh, if mm. you nominate someone as a captain and someone as a helper, can they, you know, eventually, often, well, often helpers become Grand Tour winners, you know, as we've seen. Uh, Chris Froome mm. taking over from Brad Wiggins, and and it, that's actually how I mean, that's how you start. That's how you often some of these riders start their their career. There's obviously others who don't, but then we've sort of we've been all the way to the the pillars of cycling in with people where I thought I can't believe I have to tell you this. I can't believe you. I have to like uh, emphasize that of course you don't ride away from a, a a teammate who's wearing the jersey. And even if he somehow feels intimidated and, and, and has a sense of having to tell him, it's fine, it's fine, just go without me. You just don't do that. And I think mm. that those images, will, 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 for some people, I think were hard to erase, that they just rode away for, for no yeah. reason whatsoever, and, you could say, yeah. with, in terms of how much time they took on him that day. The Angler stage. I, I think doubly difficult to un- diff- doubly difficult to understand and where it started to look like greed and hubris was the fact that there were two riders who were riding away it wasn't as though it was you know one guy Vingegaard was going away but Roglic nonetheless remained with Kuss was remaining with Kuss um, at all times and I think you know the answer the the reason why that was is that they had their eyes and their hearts set on this clean sweep and they were greedy um they were well they would say they were ambitious but that greed or ambition was vindicated in the end because they are going to do this clean sweep of the podium and clean sweep of the grand tours this year brian let's hear shall we from jonas vingegaard not in the press conference after the stage but immediately after the stage after he'd crossed the line arm in arm hand in hand with primos roglic and sepkus and let's also hear from a Jumbo visma rider who We've heard from on numerous occasions in this Vuelta España, uh, Attila Valta, who is riding his first Grand Tour for Jumbo Visma. And he was 
absolutely elated as you're going to hear um, but I don't think I've ever seen anyone look so tired either at the end of a Grand Tour but um, his efforts will certainly be rewarded I mean as I said before it's uh, he's a super great guy and I, I really I'm, I'm super super happy that he's he's winning here and uh, I said it many times but uh, yeah he, he really deserves it and I'm so glad for him uh, so yeah it's just special to to ride there hand in hand with him and, and, and Primoz and then we're all three on the podium is, is even more uh, more special. I mean uh, obviously uh, if, if, if he wants to he will get the chances in the future for sure. Uh, I hope for Sepp he will, he will want to because he's uh, yeah he's, he's so good that he, he deserves all the chances and uh, obviously then uh, I will lose uh, a super great helper in the mountains, uh, but yeah, Sepp, Sepp uh, deserves all the all the chances he gets. Thank you so much. I don't know, you had a big highlight of your career already in Budapest with the Giro, how does this compare? Yeah, it's two different things, uh, there I haven't had to do much uh, because I had, uh, I, I did my best uh, the years before uh, in the Giro and last year it was more a celebration in, uh, in the Giro for me, uh, this time it's really yeah, sporting-wise, it's something huge. It's 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 incredible, and uh, I I try to do every day uh, my best because with this eight, you you really feel that everyone is just like perfect riders. So you really have to do your best because you also want to be part of it. And uh, I think I did, and uh, I can be really proud of that. And and I really proud of the guys how they how they showed how how big champions they are, how how we race together. Also, again today, uh, what Dylan and Robert did is just something I never seen in my life. It's it's amazing, and uh, still Robert won the drag race uh, for the last climb. It's I couldn't believe my eyes. It's uh, he's insane, and uh, and yeah, he's, they are also all a lot uh, good teachers, so I can learn a lot from them. So yeah, it's uh, sporting-wise, this Vuelta is yeah highlight of my career. And you knew this was a good team before you signed. What have you? discovered in this world and this year that's maybe surprised even you and surpassed your expectations about this team? Oh, it's uh, quite a difficult question because I'm really tired now to answer that. Uh, in all the way it's just really nice and uh, you can see and really today is the biggest example that uh, you have someone like Sepp Kuss who is just an extraordinary rider and if you are good enough you will win even the biggest races. So that's it in the end and uh, I have to Short celebration here. So yeah, it's uh, you see how happy we are. We, we can learn from each other, and it's just a, so, such a nice team, such a nice environment. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Brian, I've been promising, teasing this discussion throughout the episode tonight. We were going to have a discussion about Juan Ayuso and his Vuelta a España, which, let's face it, it's been a very solid Vuelta a España. He's going to finish if the general classification remains as it is in fourth place, three minutes and 44 seconds adrift of Sepp Kuss. Now, Today in Guadarrama, well, we were very close to the location where last year, at the end of the Vuelta a España, um, Juan Ayuso sewed up his podium 
position in the Vuelta. He was the youngest. Was he, he was the youngest podium finisher in a Grand Tour for an inordinate number of years. I can't remember exactly. I don't have the um, that piece of trivia to hand. But it, finishing third as a teenager, extraordinary, extraordinary stuff. Twenty years old now. Twenty-one today. In, he was his first sorry, twenty-one. He was. Oh, he's twenty-one today. Um, so he's going to finish fourth at 21, um, taken out of the context of the last three years when we've had all these sort of baby phenoms um, rewriting the rules of professional cycling. It would be an extraordinary, an extraordinary feat to finish fourth in the Vuelta a España at age 21. However, somehow, Brian, somehow it feels ever so slightly anticlimactic or am I being unfair? I, I understand why you would say that, but I also... I mean, let's say to say he is really just 20 years old, but and yeah. uh, and this is also what's it called like um, sub, 21. Sub, His birthday was today. Subjunctive conditional <laughs> that I introduced earlier yeah. that had Vingegaard not participated unexpectedly in the world and had uh, Sepkus not been a, a, a general classification rider, which he became unexpectedly, he would have finished in the same. Probably he would have finished third, at least third, potentially second in this world so, and then we would say well you know he's, he's definitely confirmed that he's still so young but he's, he's very consistent his year has been quite diff- difficult he's had you know he's not had the season he wanted to and you know he's he's only basically raced half a season you, you could almost say so i think uh, given the competition he's up against given the the team he had to support him, which I think they've done fairly well, but they also they also had their own. It was overshadowed by Jumbo Visma, but they also seem to have their own. Marc Soler wanting to do, produce a result overall at, at certain parts of the race, and then him coming in and, and was trying to confirm it. And I, I think that it, there's obviously massive potential, there's massive learning potential. And the interesting thing is he actually he's a he is at times a great time trialist, and that's a massive weapon for someone who can climb as well as him. His Vuelta has just lacked a wow moment. Yeah. It's it's lacked a defining moment that is going to remain sort of burned into people's retinas, into people's memories. Certainly, I'm struggling to um, call to call to mind a, a a really sort of defining performance in this Vuelta Spain. But you know, consistency is in itself. Or it, it's not only an a virtue it's the defining well, it's the most important virtue that a grand tour rider can have so um i think well we also see many many grand tour contenders come into three week races and crash out get ill get dropped in the first mountain stage finish 15th or 50th or worse so to deliver and he has there's no doubt about it he has delivered and he's been the best of the rest um it's been impressive nonetheless um different conversation for Emmerich Mass. Uh, we've talked before about his consistency in the Vuelta España three times third I think his performance has been in line with his other Vueltas um the result is not in line with them he's going to finish sixth which looks worse on paper than it is in actual fact and there's this sort of well, weariness with Emric Mas on the part of the Spanish fans and particularly Spanish social media and they give him a, a pretty hard time and they're pretty unforgiving, um, certainly with regard to his tactics and his very conservative tactics or what look like conservative tactics. The reality is that you know he's, he's on the rivet, he's in the red zone as most riders are um, at most crucial stages. Um, of races and he, he, he simply can't attack well, so, also, um, howling at the moon he, he is very much also 
in a position that's not easy because he, you know, there's a there's another Spanish rider who's eight years younger than him, uh, performing better in the biggest yeah. Spanish race. So he could even have uh, he could have finished fifth also, and you know, as as long as there's one that's significantly younger and 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 doing better, uh, it, it that's going to wear on him as well. Uh, and it's when when you when you aren't someone who wins a lot of you know you're not winning stages, you're not necessarily riding all the finals with with the big boys then yeah it's 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 not great for him that's for sure also worthy of a mention brian is well if juan ayuso was the young sensation along with carlos rodriguez of last year's vuelta España, the young sensation of this year's race is probably kian utterbrooks i would say um he lost a little bit of time today but he's going to finish in fact he lost a place on general classification to his teammate alexander vlasov um, but he's going to finish inside the top 10. We've heard on various occasions during this world about his saddle sore problems that have handicapped him, I think. And, uh, well, either way, anyway, it's been a really, really promising Grand Tour debut for him. And his, his personality as well has charmed us and delighted anyone who's heard his interviews and, and watched him on the bike as Very well. important also that... He's he's left a bigger mark on riders who performed better in the GC, and as as much as some people don't like that, it's actually also massively important to teams that they have riders like that. I can't remember anything that Vlasov has said. I can't necessarily remember anything that Landa or Mas for that matter have said. Well, it's kind of our that's kind of our fault for not interviewing. Yeah, Vlasov, but even if it? you spend twenty Collect- collectively, if you spend twenty five minutes with him every day, I'm not sure that uh, I don't know. I mean, that's maybe just me being prejudiced, but. He's just he's just a very likable and interesting character, and as as the Australians would say, he's certainly not a wind jersey. Brian, last uh, rider to mention in dispatches from today, um, uh, Keanu Brooks, as I said, the young sensation of this Vuelta España, the Belgian, young Belgian, the sort of the ne- the next man in line behind Remco Evenepoel, but another young Belgian was uh, unlucky today and rode brilliantly, Leonard van Etvelt. Uh, and he's had a really good Vuelta España. He was good on the Angliru. He was aggressive as well. And Lotto Destiny have had a pretty good race. Brian, it's uh, that time in the podcast. Well, it's a tradition that we instituted a few days ago. Um, taking inspiration from Sepp Kuss's probable victory in this Vuelta España. The fact that he's done all three Grand Tours this year. Well, I've taken inspiration from this to create my own mini feature um, based on my crazy theory that riding all three Grand Tours will soon be the done thing among those who aspire to win Grand Tours. Last night we heard from Thomas de Hent, the Lotto Destiny rider, who wasn't fully convinced by my theory, but didn't um, laugh me out of Spain either. You should have talked to Adam Adam Henson. Well, I think Adam Hansen was here today. It's a shame I didn't manage to catch up with him. I didn't see him. Um, today, we're going to hear from a coach again, Brian. It is the South African performance... Is he the performance director? He's certainly performance coach at Bora Hansgrohe. His name is John Wakefield. And here's how he responded to my crackpot theory. Yeah, so if you take Seb Chris as an example, if you look at his calendar this year, he had done very minimal racing prior to to Jira and then he had just done the three Grand Tours you know so his year specifically and, and specifically around that was based on three Grand Tours um, it's not like he had done 
you know, big block prior to prior to Giro, recovered, went to tour, did some racing in between and came to Volta. So he had really gone from a good build-up, Grand Tour, recovery, probably some altitude specificity, Grand Tour and repeat. And here he is being, uh, being, being your man of the match at the end of the year. You know, so from, from a planning and periodization and management side, I, I really do commend them on what they've done with them. Um, it, it really has been impressive. Because most of the guys I think I'm right in saying, um, and this goes for Grand Tour riders and um, one-day riders, mm. they sort of work in these two-day or three-day blocks. Um, I was speaking to a few riders yesterday who said now a lot of are doing sort of two-day blocks and it's kind of one day off. Again, that seems kind of paradoxical for a, a Grand Tour rider who has to, let's face it, you know, they're doing intense efforts for nine days in a row sometimes, then a rest day, then another seven days, then a rest day. Um, again, am I completely barking up the wrong tree here? Uh, no, because so that sort of two day on, one day off block, you want to essentially get a stimulus for two days and then adapt and recover from that stimulus on the third day and build again. Where, you know, at the end of the day at a Grand Tour, you're sort of just getting beaten up every day. So coming in, in in good form and having a proper build is key. You know, so this, if you look at the files and that from this Volta, it's literally been the last day of, of the Grand Tour. It's been flat out every single day. It doesn't matter the stage. It's, it's actually been quite incredible. Um, but to do that two day, one day, it's really just from a, a load stimulus adaptation so you can build form and fitness and then going into your into your grand tour now so if you had to do hypothetically if you're looking at like nine day blocks the guys won't recover from that you know you come into the grand tour already done one or two grand tours prior to the volta should you have sort of trained that way is there any way the human body can adapt in the long term to those nine day nine day of intense stimuli could someone embark on a program of two three years where they are doing nine days of intense effort and there will be a compensation in the body which will which will hone them for that um right now i I would probably say no um but however looking at how cycling has developed over the last five years you know what you did eight ten years ago would never have you top 10 at a grand tour this year you know so to say is it impossible no like you know cycling is evolving at a, at a rapid rate um, especially your style of racing at the moment so to say two three years of that and have an adaptation um, I don't know if it would be that long in terms of progression it could maybe come quicker purely because of that load so once you recover from that load your adaptation comes a lot quicker so I don't know if you can repetitively do that for three years uh, on, on the trot but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would say no right now, personally. I'd, I wouldn't want to be the rider that's experimenting with that right now either, to be honest. Um, but I, I do believe things will evolve. And if that is how sort of racing ends up, you would need to adapt your training accordingly. And just finally, John, so Sepp has done these two Grand Tours. If one was to do a complete kind of physical, physiological screening of, of his body and where it is now, have those two Grand Tours endowed him with things that other guys in the field don't have i'm thinking in layman's terms a base maybe you could get into the weeds of i don't know capillarization mitochondrial function etc etc are the things that well advantages that he will have because he has done those two grand tours yeah i i definitely do believe that and also because he had gone grand to recover grand tour you know so he had done nothing in between so just from a mental side he can fully shut down which i'm sure he did um have that 
adaptation from that previous Grand Tour coming into the next one and again. So from that side, yeah, he, he would definitely have taken a lot out of it, A, in terms of just management of himself. He knows he would have sensations, feelings and, and all the rest of it. Just off that alone, he would have a, have a huge benefit. Brian, the problem with all of these interviews is that the moment I press stop on the recorder, the conversation carries on and you and the listeners don't hear how this this process of this slow process of brainwashing that I'm undertaking with all of these interview subjects, it is, I feel that it's working. Um, John as well, we, the conversation carried on. The more we talked, the more he, I thought, was coming around to my way of thinking. So look out for nine Bora Hansgrohe riders or eight sorry it's eight man teams now isn't it um eight anointed Bora Hansgrohe riders next year doing all three major tours you're, you're, and that's the kind of influence I'm you're having creating your own, uh, you're creating your own you're creating your own hammer series then <laughs> like, you're, you're you've invented a new race format basically it's <laughs> we all know how that went Brian Brian it's almost time to go home um and at the end of tomorrow's stage it will be time to go home Tell us about tomorrow's stage. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Brian, before you start, not too much to say about last night's food. I think I'm going to do a summary, a gastronomic summary of this World Day España tomorrow um, because we haven't talked that much about what we've been eating. But I will say, well, it was a good restaurant last night. Even, even had some e- vegan and vegetarian food on offer. But we stayed in Segovia. What a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, all sorts of things to recommend there. The aqueduct, the cathedral. But just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous place if you ever get a chance to visit that part of Spain. Um, conveniently located for Madrid. So if you have a multi-day trip in Madrid, also worth getting, I think, think you can probably get a train to Segovia quite easily um, but Brian tomorrow we will be in Madrid tell us about the final stage of this Vuelta España please yeah so uh, it's an, it, it'll, it'll be Keep. it'll be the, what we what we used to in, in Madrid with a, a late start or well, a general late start in the Vuelta but also an evening race starting in the in the Hippodromos or the, the horse race track de la Zarzuela and it's all like people often forget how high uh, uh, position Madrid is is basically in 600 meters of altitude, so it's all all on the um, on the plains, the higher plains of Spain tomorrow, uh, and then they roll in towards Madrid and they do their their ten their ten laps uh, as as per usual. There's a bonus sprint uh, basically halfway through the stage, but everything else is is how we're used to. It. I don't think we really need to add anything, do we, Brian? And you'll be with me anyway tomorrow for the last podcast of this Vuelta España. It will be a pretty late one. Brian, I propose we play out tonight with the voice of another good friend of ours. It is the Motan Maestro, Lucky Larry Warbass, uh, Ajé de... Dozel Citroën's Larry Warbass, who is coming to the end of pretty tiring... Uh, but nonetheless rewarding Vuelta a España for him so Brian I'll see you again tomorrow and in the meantime here is Larry I didn't want to say Larry uh, I saw you rolling into the start this morning and um, I've seen you look fresher Larry Um, how are you feeling yeah I mean I'm pretty tired but I don't feel too bad you know I mean I think it's pretty normal to be tired on the 20th stage of a grand tour so uh so yeah uh 
We'll see. Hopefully it'll be a good day. <laughs> Larry, in case I don't manage to speak to you tomorrow, tomorrow morning um, at the start, who knows what's going to happen today? Who's no, who knows what's going to happen? You know, you might find diamonds in your legs somewhere out there in the Sierras above Madrid. But give us a bit of a summary of the race from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, it's been a hard one, you know. Uh, I think it was a different Vuelta than a lot of people expected, you know. I think, uh, obviously, everyone expected that Jumbo would have, like, an amazing team, but I don't think uh, anyone expected it to be such a closed race, um, you know, in so many days where, yeah, the breakaway didn't go to the line. Um, but, you know, I mean that can happen and uh and yeah so you know it's it's hard because if you look at the guys outside of you know the sprint stages um who won the stages uh you know very big names um so so yeah it's uh yeah it's been a tough one um and we've raced it super super hard you know even if uh some other you know grand tours maybe the parkour uh, is harder um the way we've raced this one's just been uh, really, really tough. You, of course, did the Giro, Larry. Yeah. Painting in broad brushstrokes. Give us some um, well, points of difference and maybe things that the two have had in common this year. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, is like the Giro is insane in terms of, yeah, the difficulty of the course, you know, like the stages. I don't know how many days we had, 5,000 meters of climbing, things like that. Then we also had uh, the uh, meteorological uh, <laughs> difficulties this year as well there. Um, so that made it really challenging from that aspect. But in terms of the way it was raced, uh, it was not as crazy difficult. You know, like just to sit in the peloton there uh, wasn't necessarily as challenging as it was here. You know, I mean, some days it was just, uh, I mean, it was unreal fast here and uh you know you were suffering from kilometer zero to uh wherever you finished and uh so yeah that, that was really really hard um you know uh there were a lot of guys uh really really going above their limits i think you know um but luckily the last two days have been slightly easier uh in terms of the way it's been raced and uh yeah so we'll see hopefully we'll have legs for today <laughs> And Larry, you and I, well, we, we've talked quite a lot this year about your training and, you know, the tinkering at times or your kind of urge to sometimes change things up, change things um, around. Do you think there'll be any sort of big conclusions that you take out of this about things you will do differently next year? I mean, I, a lot of it was out of my control, you know, like... Uh, I got put into, you know, some races, uh, you know, quite a few times where I wasn't really uh, planned. Um, but, you know, that, that happens in a team uh, when guys get sick or injured or, you know, other circumstances. Um, so, you know, I think now I'm at like 85 or 86 race days for this year. Um, and I'm not finished. So, you know, uh, I think if I could have a little more breaks or you know times like if I had a good preparation you know uh, I think it would really help you know I did an altitude camp in July but uh, you know then I went Poland straight to the world pretty much straight to Burgos pretty much straight to here so um, you know I think it makes sense to be a little tired and, and it was a bit similar preparation for the Giro so uh, you know I'll talk with the team and see if it's possible to avoid these sort of situations next year I think it'll be slightly easier because we'll have a continental team um, 
that they can pull some guys from. But uh, but yeah, I mean that's not totally in my control. So uh, I work with what I have, and uh, yeah, I've been doing my best. So. Larry, hopefully we will speak to you tomorrow after the final stage in Madrid um, to thank you for everything you've done for us this year. What would you like me to bring you tomorrow um, in Madrid on the finish line? Um, is there a particular beer you like or a pizza or do you any any special requests? Oh man, I had to think about that. You know, it's got to be a good one. So yeah, give me give me uh, a little bit of time and maybe I'll text you the answer. We, we will record the presentation and it will, I'm sure, be an emotional moment for both of us tomorrow. Okay, sounds great. Thanks, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Free, and Lionel Byrne. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.